Galatians chapter 5. I want to read verses 7 to 12. And I'm going to ask you, if you're able, to stand as we read the Word of God today. Let us uh, give careful attention to the inerrant, inspired, infallible, and, and the sufficient Word of God this morning. Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. The Apostle Paul pins these words to the Galatians and to us. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will have or take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Thus ends the reading and the hearing of God's word. Let me pray. Father, I ask you today that your Holy Spirit would breathe life into our souls and into our hearts from the sacred page. May we know Jesus better today because we have been here and we have been under the preaching and teaching of the word. We ask that you would be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So... uh, You don't have to give true confession this morning, but uh, uh, one of the good things about this being fallback week is is like, if you watch the World Series, then you're probably tired because you've been up late every night, and uh, I hope that you were uh, as pleased as I was about the uh, Nationals uh, uh, beating the uh, Astros, and uh, what a great Game 7 that was. Uh, how many of you are, like sports? I mean, most of us do, don't we? Most of us like uh, some form of sports, some form or another. Uh, I, I loved, uh, I played uh, football when I was in high school uh, one year on my high school team and uh, decided that, that wasn't my sport. Uh, so I played basketball and, and played uh, uh, baseball and that kind of thing with my peers and in uh, um uh, extracurricular or extra intramural teams and that kind of stuff uh, when uh, I was uh, in high school and my first year of uh, college at, Bell- at uh, Mississippi State University. And then after I went to Bellhaven College, they started a soccer team. The first year they'd ever had a soccer team at Bellhaven. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go try out for the soccer team. And um, lo and behold, uh, I, I made the soccer team. And you know, the second year that um, well, the first year we had a team, we were number two in the state. Mississippi State University beat us, and it was because they were able to recruit these uh, South American kids who had played soccer all of their lives. You know, since right after learning to walk, these guys had a, a soccer ball between their feet. Well, Mississippi State had this guy, and I can remember the first year, they, this guy must have been able to sprint, you know, he'd do the 100-yard dash in, in nothing flat, like a nanosecond. And they, they would, they would uh, yell out, uh, uh, and uh, they'd send him straight down the field, and somebody would sail the ball over to him, and he would pop it into the goal, and they just, they just wore us out. 
we were number two in the state that year. Next year, we came back. We had a winning season. We won. But you know what I hated about soccer? I hated preseason. You know why I hated preseason? Because we had to train. And preseason training meant that we were required, we were, we were supposed to, and, and most of us did, run for no less than an hour every day of the week up and down the hills around uh, Bellhaven College in Jackson, Mississippi. And I just hate running. It's just boring to me. And, and not only that, it's painful. I mean, you know, and, and to run for an hour? And, and we weren't supposed to just, you know, kind of jog along. It was no jogging. It was running for an hour. And that was all to get prepared for preseason and for uh, the games and for the practices and everything else that would go on for the rest of the season. I love soccer, but I hated the training. Um, so one of the things I did to help myself was I would get a couple of other guys who would run with me. And we would kind of, we, we kind of formed a kind of a, a team, a, a group of guys, and we would run together. And uh, we'd run in a pack. And uh, uh, we would run through the neighborhood. And, and we would make fun of the guy who was being a weenie, you know, who was not keeping up with the pace, who was, who was uh, you know, complaining. Complaining about his sides hurting. Oh, I'm hurting. Oh, my hamstrings are so tight I can't run. And, you know, we would, we did that so that we could learn and so that we could train ourselves to run and to work as a team together. So I would do that every, every uh, fall, early in the, early in the fall to get ready for soccer season. I still hate running. In fact, I don't run anymore. <laughs> Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I run to dinner, and, and if, there's, if there's a turkey somewhere in the woods near me, I will run to set up on him so I can shoot a turkey. But that's about it, okay? I think the Apostle Paul may have been an athlete in his day. I, I think that, that we don't have a full orb picture of who the Apostle Paul was. But perhaps as a young man... And I think this, based on the references that Paul makes over and over again to different athletic uh, events and contests and that kind of thing, the way he talks about running the race, the way he talks about the marathon and that kind of thing, I think Paul may have been an athlete in his younger days, you know? In our passage this morning, what does he open with? He says, you were running well, who hindered you? You know what it's like to run in a pack, to run with a group of other people? That's not always an easy thing to do. I mean, there are plenty of us who are old enough to remember the Los Angeles, what was it, 84 Olympics? Remember? There are plenty of us old enough. Some of us are old enough to remember that. Does anybody here remember that? Any of us old folks remember that? Okay. In the 84 Olympics, uh, there, were, there were two runners. There was a, 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 a young lady named Mary Decker, and she was favored to win the gold in the 3,000-meter run. Okay, she was, she was the favorite. Um, and uh, there was another uh, woman, Zola Budd, who was representing Great Britain, but she was uh, from South Africa, and she actually ran barefoot. Maybe you remember that about her. Um, she ran in that same Olympic with uh, Mary Decker. And um, as they were running, Budd 
decides that she's Zolabud, decides that she's going to overtake uh, Mary Decker. And um, Decker was favored, but she, she was being overtaken by uh, Bud. And as they were running, Decker remained close with another runner, tripped and fell. And she rolled out into the, I guess they call it the infield uh, in the uh, Olympic thing. Uh, apparently, the accepted convention in Olympic running is that you're supposed to be a full pace in front of the runner, you know, when you overtake. Apparently that didn't happen. She fell and rolled out into the uh, infield, and uh, she wasn't able to finish the race. Later on, she was interviewed uh, after the race, and she said, the reason I fell, Mary Decker said this, the reason I fell, some people think that she tripped me deliberately. I happen to know that it wasn't the case at all. The reason I fell is because I am and was a very... uh, was very inexperienced in running in a pack. I was thinking about our text this morning, and Paul is talking about the way we run. And he's talking about the way we run as a team, the way we run in a pack, the way we run with others. And I think as Paul is talking to the Galatians and as he's talking to us, he's not just talking to us about being Christians and the way we as Christians run together as, I'm going to say, the church of Jesus Christ, as the, as the visible church of Christ. Paul is talking, I think, about a, a global, a bigger picture than that. When he talks about the, the running in a pack, he's talking about running in the world. How do you run in the world that we live in? How do you run with unbelievers? How do you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, live out your Christian life, your Christian world and life view? I think that's what Paul is driving at here in our text. You know, uh, sometimes we're cut off from the lead. Sometimes we just stumble. Other times we're out in the wide open space and it's all ours to take for ourselves. Running well is running in freedom. Paul's talking to us about how we run. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? The other translations, the NIV translates it uh, like this. It says, who cut in on you? You know, who cut you off? That's what reminded me of the Olympic uh, thing this week. Uh, Another way, another translation says, who deflected you from the course set for truth? Running well. Running and soccer taught me an immensely valuable lesson as a young man. I think that lesson is this, is that you can start pretty well, and you may not finish well. You know, as I would start training for soccer in the fall seasons, I could start in the first the first 15 minutes of our running, I would be all right. But about minute 30, minute 40, I was sucking wind pretty hard. You know, I was breathing hard. I was hurting. I was in pain. And by the last few minutes of our run, I can remember being so tired that I could hardly put one foot in front of the other. By the end of the season, no problem. But in those opening days, 
It was hard work. You can start well, but not finish well. And you can bluff your way through those first few laps. You know? You can look good. If you're in shape, um, you know, if you're not in shape, you won't be able to maintain the pace. But if you're in shape, you can keep pace. You can do it. When we would finally play those soccer matches at Bellhaven College, I could run for the whole, we had two 45-minute halves. Both halves, run the whole time. Sure, I'd be tired by the end of the game. But you know what? After the game, we would go get dinner, go out and go have a date, whatever, and carry on with life like nothing else had happened. Couldn't do that today. I'm not in that kind of shape. You can start well and maybe not finish well. You know, I think this happens to professing Christians too. Sometimes professing Christians start well, but they don't finish well. As I've grown up in Christ, I think I've seen that over and over again. And it's something that that is a, a frightening thing to me because I think that the longer we live and love Christ, the more mature and the better we ought to finish. I think we ought to be growing in our sanctification. We ought to be growing in our faithfulness. We ought to be growing in our endurance. Jesus was familiar with the same problem. You know, he gave us the parable of the soils. There are those who receive the word with joy. They make an enthusiastic profession of faith. And then eventually, their rootlessness evidence becomes evident. It, becomes, it, it shows up. Jesus says that they don't endure. He does that in Matthew chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Paul was worried that that may be what was happening to these converts, to these believers, to these men and women who he had pastored, who he had led to Christ, who he had formed into a body of believers who were ministering in the city where they lived, that they had started well, but that they perhaps were not going to finish as they had started. They had stopped running the race, or at least they weren't running with strength, and they weren't running to finish. As I thought about that, I thought maybe there's somebody here who's in that condition, who started well, who made a strong profession of faith, who, who trusted Christ and, and who looked really good as they began. They got off to a good start, but something went terribly wrong. It happens. It is a reality of life in a fallen world. We hear the gospel, we receive it with joy, we get off to a great start. But over time, as the years tick off, we find ourselves running out of gas spiritually. We find ourselves fading. We find ourselves not making the finish line. If Paul was in Corinth when he wrote this letter, I think Paul probably was hearing about marathons and athletic contests. You know, I, I, I was thinking about this this morning as I was reviewing my sermon notes. I thought, how, in the city of Galatia, let's just take the city of Galatia. In, in the city where Paul has, is writing to, actually I think Paul wrote this from Corinthians. So we'll say in the city of Corinth. In the city of Corinth, how did they get the news out about an upcoming 
athletic contest, you know? What was, what was the deal? How did they spread the news? Did they print a newspaper? Uh, no, don't think so. Uh, how did they get, did they have a town crier walk through the town and go, marathon race today, you know, four o'clock at XYZ spot? How did they do that? I just, I don't know the answer to that. I just was wondering that. I hope that doesn't bother you for the rest of the day. Probably will bother me, okay? But I thought, I wonder if Paul heard someone say, there's going to be a contest today. There's going to be a race. There's going to be something that goes on in the Colosseum this afternoon. You know, was it just a stated thing that every uh, Saturday evening there would be some sort of event in the Colosseum and the city would just go there? Honestly, I don't know. But I bet Paul heard about it. And I bet that's part of the reason Paul penned these words to the Galatians as he's writing to them, to these Christians, because they can understand that analogy. They understand what it means to run a race. What Paul is really saying here to the Corinthians, I mean to the Galatians, is he's saying, before you continue to yield to the wishes of anyone who belongs to the group of legalists, because he remind, remember, he's been preaching and teaching about legalism, making us captive, uh, taking away our freedom in Jesus Christ, about, about the Galatian church struggling with being legalistic in their view of keeping the Old Testament law. He's, he's saying to the, these Christians in Galatia, I want you to, to think about would it not be wise to consider carefully what kind of person it was that has thrown you off course? That has, as he says here in verse 7, tripped you up, hindered you from obeying the truth. What kind of person did that? It's not the identity. It's the character that he's after. What's the character of the person who has thrown legalism up as the way to be right with God? What is their character right? What, what, is their, what, what are their values? What is their, their heart like in relationship uh, to the living God? Once they had found the illumination of the Spirit of Christ, and now they have relished earthly wisdom from false teachers. You see, something's changing in the Galatians living out of their Christian faith. They've moved away from that which started they started with, and they moved to keeping rules. Once their goal was Christ alone, now they sought status under the covenant of works. We're going to be circumcised. We're going to Keep the Old Testament food laws. We're going to do those commandments that, that call us to be a distinct and a holy people, thinking that that makes us right, gives us merit with God. Once they look to Christ, now they're finding confidence and comfort in ritual, in habits, in, in the precepts of the law, maybe even in the ways of the world. And there's where the universal principle comes out of the Scripture. We so easily become creatures 
of habit and of law-keeping and of doing things that uh, we think will earn us righteousness or merit instead of resting in Christ alone for our salvation. We probably have the same issue that the Galatians did, don't we? Our hearts are the same. The scriptures teach us that from Adam forward, all of us have been sinners. Oh, we were created in the image of God and we were created, we were created good, but our natures are fallen. And so that means that every aspect of our lives, every part of us has been touched by the reality of sin. Doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be. Certainly not. But it means that everything is broken. Satan is constantly trying to create diversions to turn those who believe in Jesus Christ aside from the race of faith. And Satan loves to let us get caught up in the habits and in the patterns and in the rituals and think that we've done enough. Some of the hindrances are the very same things that the Galatians faced. You know, they were, they were deferring to fallible human guides instead of the Word of God. Instead of Spirit-taught scriptures. They had been sidetracked by, by doubtful doctrines that were empty of Jesus Christ. They had been, they had been believing uh, that legalistic practices would somehow embrace their acceptance with, with God beyond uh, the acceptance that we already have with Christ. Those errors are current today, just like they were in Paul's day. Same thing. We face some other distractions, though, don't we? You know, but what is a modern man? What, what, is, what are the distractions of our age? I was trying to think about that. <laughs> Cell phones, that's good. We, we're all about experience, aren't we? If you, if you boil it down, even your cell phone and your it, you know, FaceTime and all that kind of stuff, those distractions that distract us, we're about experience. You think about the church today. So many times the church wants to, because they have a desire to reach the world, which we all have, they make worship an experience. I believe that the experience that we have in worship is derived from the Word of God. It's not from the, the light show and from the, 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 the band and from everything else. It's from the Word of God. We turn experience into that. There's, there are others who have fought, bought into the health and wealth and, and that kind of a, a happiness gospel and that kind of thing. Then there are others who, who believe that intellectualism is the way to go uh, when, when men love doctrine for doctrine's sake rather than because it exalts Christ. And there is a big difference there. And look, we're Presbyterians, and that's probably one of our biggest temptations. Let's be honest. Sometimes we desire other men to praise us, to, 
to be thankful for us, to, to, to give us accolades in some way rather than we desire, more than we desire that God would praise us or that we would praise God. Sometimes we fear what other men may say about us too, don't we? And we let those kind of fears cripple us and, and we find ourselves not being, not living for Christ and not living for the gospel and we fear man more than we fear God. Those are all the hindrances, that are not all of them, those are hindrances that we all struggle with. The scripture says that, that when we struggle with those things, just like the Galatians struggled with the law, that we are being hindered from obeying the truth. What Paul meant by truth is the truth of the gospel. The truth is the good news of salvation from sin and death through the crucifixion, through the resurrection, from the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Truth is a truth that is to be obeyed. Running a good race in the Christian life means something more than just knowing the truth. It means that we will practice the truth. It means that, that as far as our standing before God is, is concerned, we do believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is our Messiah, that he is our substitute. We do believe in Jesus. We are justified by our faith. But our faith has another element to it. We are not only to be justified, we are to be sanctified. We are to live out our Christian life day after day in obedience to Jesus Christ. It's not just that we get the insurance policy to tuck away in our, in our coat pocket. It means that we live for Jesus Christ. It means that there's, there's, an, there's, a, there's a, a living faith that, that obeys gospel truth. We believe and how we behave, those two things, what we believe and how we behave, are inseparable. There is an unbreakable bond between theological precision and what I'm going to call spiritual vitality. You understand, you know theologically what Christ has done. You know those things. You have those facts and those things. You're understanding what they are. And your spiritual life is derived out of obedience to those things. Your spiritual vitality. Your, the, the thing that makes you alive. That gives you life. John Stott said it a lot better than I can. John Stott said, Our creed is, is expressed in our conduct, and our conduct is derived from our creed. Cyclical. You can't have one without the other and be a real believer. And that's what Paul is urging for the Galatians to do. Christians not, Christianity is not something we simply know. It's something we do. It's who we are. It's not just a, a system of belief or a moral code. It is theology that comes to life, that has a life to it. Y'all, I love systematic theology. I love to read theology. But just reading and knowing theology is not enough. 
I've got to take what I learn and what I know as I read and I study, and I have to apply it to my life. When I prepare a sermon for you, when David prepares a sermon for you, we must filter the Word of God through our own hearts and lives so that there is spiritual vitality that lies behind the words that we bring to you. If that's not true, then we are not truly preaching the Word. Oh, we may be preaching, but we're not really preaching the Word if that's not true. Well, let me move on with the text. And, and, and so Paul does something I think is really cool in the Greek here. And this is not going to excite you too much at all, okay? But I'm going to share it with you anyway. Go on and pop that next slide up if you would. <clears throat> in, in the original Greek, in verse 7 and verse 8 and then verse 10, Paul uses three words that start with P, okay? And those three words are pronounced um, uh, patheosthai, uh, peisman, uh, and peipoitha, okay? Now, those words are hard for me to say. They are also hard uh, to uh, uh, kind of get, the, they have a similar sound to them, and it's something that's difficult to reproduce in our English uh, speech and in our English language, um, and, and Paul does this on purpose. Um, so, so here's my attempt at translating this. Paul says, basically, who cut you off, cut in on you so that you did not continue to be persuaded by, hence to obey the truth? This new persuasion of yours has not derived from him who is calling you. And then verse 10, I on my part am persuaded in the Lord. Okay? Paul's kind of using that P word over and over again to talk about persuasion, to talk about, about who has cut you off, who has, who, has, who has influenced you in that kind of way. We're, the Galatians are being told that the persuasion that draws them away from the truth doesn't have its source in God. That's what that's all about. I just, I, I don't know, I, I'll be honest, this was another one of those sermons that was written between the hours of 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., and at, you know, whatever time that was, 4 o'clock in the morning, I was like, this is so cool. I mean, yeah, maybe I'd had a cup of coffee by then. But I, 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 just, I was just struck by the way Paul did that this time. I think, I think we need to realize that what's happening here is that really what they're, when they say with their present course of action, the way the Galatians are living, Paul is calling them to accountability. He's saying that they are saying basically no to God by continuing to live under the law, under the persuasion under the, the influence of these Judaizers. And by saying no to God in that way, they are, in essence, saying yes to Satan. They're let, letting Satan kind of take rule, take, take, take over. It's a mild way of declaring that they're saying yes to Satan. The, with verse 9, the warning continues, okay? He goes on. He says... This time he does it in the form of a proverb, in like, just like he uses in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. A little leaven 
leavens the whole lump. Okay, English readers, we read Paul's words here in verse 8 and verse 9, and we go, This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord. You will take no other view. And we think, a little leaven, how did that, that this is just like it's out, out of the blue, okay? But Paul's using a proverbial statement that they would all understand, and you understand what it means too, don't you? When you put a little pinch of leaven in bread, that yeast has a chemical reaction, there's life there, and that bread begins to rise, and oh my goodness, do you not love the smell of yeast in bread that is right? Is that not the most? Okay, a little pinch of leaven makes the bread rise. A little touch of sin permeates the whole of life. This is what Paul's saying there. So I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about the Israelites. Thinking about the Passover. What did God say to the Israelites at the Passover? We're about to take of the sacrament here in just a minute. We're about to take of the sacramental meal where we use unleavened bread. No yeast in the bread. Why do we use unleavened bread? God told the Israelites not to put leaven in the bread before the Passover so that they wouldn't be hung up waiting for the bread to rise before they got out of Dodge before they left Egypt. He didn't want them to be slowed down. He didn't want them to be entangled with sin. He wanted them to be able to move on with, with, um, with haste and with speed. Paul's saying, basically, a, a pinch of law thoroughly contaminates the whole gospel. That's the point. <laughs> oh, a pinch of legalism in my life contaminates the redeeming grace of Jesus in my life. That's more profound than it first appears, isn't it? They've taken on this new persuasion. Salvation by grace plus works. And so the, the attention gradually shifts to the works until grace has disappeared completely and so has Jesus Christ. We partake of the sacrament once a month here. And the session has determined that we would partake of the sacrament monthly. And one of the reasons we do monthly communion is because we want to be sure that we not let it become mundane, that it not become a ritual and just a habit, that it be something that is special, that is marked by a special occasion. Now, it is a means of grace, and, and I think that there is some value in weekly communion, but, but I think we have to be extremely careful not to let the, the ritual, the, 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 the process we use to become more important 
than the thing that it symbolizes. I think we have the same problem. But not just with the sacrament, is it? It's with the other elements of our lives. Oh, we can think we're being good Christians because never mind the way that I live all day long, this morning I read my Bible for 10 minutes and I uh, prayed for a few minutes this morning too. Oh, you can read your Bible and pray, but if it doesn't impact the rest of your day, you're looking at you're looking at adding works to what Jesus Christ has done with you. That time of prayer and Bible reading in the in the morning is relationship time. You ought to be developing a relationship with Jesus Christ. You ought to be loving Jesus Christ and letting him love you in such a way that you want to talk to him and let him talk to you. It ought to come out of that kind of a heart, not out of, okay, I'm going to spend my time and I'm going to check that off. You see the difference in the heart of devotion, the heart of relationship versus a legalistic way of having a quiet time? It's easy to fall in the other habit. You do it, I do it, we both do it. We need to repent. Hey, you need an illustration or two about how a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump? Think about this one. When Israel, after, after they had uh, left Egypt, they're out in the desert and things are going along and, and Moses gets called up to the top of Mount Sinai and what happens? Well, they, they start worship. Only they start worshiping a golden calf, don't they? They substitute the worship of God uh, under the symbolism of a golden calf that turns into gross idolatry. Hey, it only took a worm to destroy Jonah's gourd. Okay, I had to get Jonah in this week, okay? <laughs> I'm going to pay the kid five bucks, too. He, he just has to remember to ask for it. Cancer spreads. It metastasizes so that a malignant tumor ever so small has its beginning and may in the end destroy the whole body. A little careless match or a cigarette butt out the window can destroy acres and acres and acres of valuable timber it's, it can set fire to homes and, and uh, you know, kill animals and people and properties are ruined. Just a little match. A few roots of a beautiful flower tossed into a stream can choke a stream out of life. Rivers, canals, lakes... And beautiful Florida come, becomes a place that's choked with water hyacinth. Think about those realities in, in, in our world today. Someone has a pet python and they decide that he's gotten too big or he's too expensive to keep. And so they toss him out in the Everglades. And now the state of Florida is paying hunters to uh, find pythons. Just a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In the same way, a pinch of law thoroughly contaminates the gospel. 
That proverb pulls us back, doesn't it? Our confidence is in Jesus. Our confidence is in the Savior. Over and over again, Paul warns us about depending on ourselves and on our works to make us right with God. We've, we've, we've beat this horse to death through the book of Galatians, haven't we? And yet I keep coming to the text and being convicted in my own heart about my own sinful habits. Paul has shown great concern for us. In verse 10, he reminds us that he has this deep-seated conviction that his words have the desired effect in their lives, not because of any innate goodness in them, but solely on their and his relationship with Christ. Look at verse 10. I think it's really important. Paul has Paul has warned them over and over again. I have confidence, and then he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul trusts in the Lord. That they would be delivered that. In other words, Paul is basically saying to the Galatian peoples, he, he's saying, Number one, I understand that you are genuine believers in Jesus Christ. I know that you love Jesus. I know who you are. I know about your faith in him. I know you're resting in him for your salvation. And your preservation does not, uh, is, is not due to your ability. And that's basically what he's saying here in verse 10 to us. He's saying that, that it doesn't count on you, but it counts on the power of God. God will preserve you, and I have confidence in the fact that he will preserve you. His confidence is in their union with Christ, and that God, who gave them the standing of faith and trust and righteousness and election and in calling and regeneration, will continue to carry them. You see, what Paul is doing here is Paul is leaning on one of the great doctrines of the Word of God. His confidence in them is really his confidence in the Lord, that the Lord will persevere with them to the very end. It's the great doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That's important for you. I I really think we ought to frame that in another way. I think it's God's perseverance with the saints. Because once God has begun a work in you, he will not stop. He will continue that work. He will bring you to maturity in Christ. God has done a gracious thing. Think about the application of that. That's not just a simple, just, it's not just that God looks at you and goes, oh, you're my child and I have forgiven you and I'm just going to overlook your sin no matter how bad it is. It's not just that God simply glosses over our sin in some way, you know, that God just, just says, I, oh, well, you know, I kind of expected that out of you. It's that he perseveres with us. In spite of all that's happened, Paul looked at the Galatians with affection and with calmness because he believes in the power of God I think the application for me as a pastor, for those of you who are officers in the church of Jesus Christ today, the application for those who lead and those who minister in Christ's name 
is that we ought not become alarmed or discouraged by the failings of those to whom we're called to minister. In fact, you can take that as a parent because your first role and responsibility as a parent is that you would disciple your children so that they may never know a day that they don't know and love Jesus. And so when you find your children living in rebellion in some way, don't be discouraged if God is working grace in their hearts, he's going to finish that work. Look, that's not easy. That's not an easy place to be. I think there's application there in the great doctrine of the perseverance of the saint. It was God who chose his people, and it is he who will bring every one of them to glory. Our responsibility is to follow Paul's example, to preach the gospel, to convince, to rebuke, to exhort with all long-suffering and teaching doctrine. But salvation and preservation are of the Lord. Parents, your role is the same. You are the pastor. You are the teacher. You are the elder in your household. Do that for your children and don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Continue to trust the Lord. One last point this morning, and then we'll come to the table. Paul is, is filled with love for the Galatians. He says, I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. You guys have been waiting for me to get to this, and I know it. What in the world is Paul doing here? Can you believe that, that an apostle of Jesus Christ would use that kind of language? What in the world? That is not politically correct. Paul, let's, let's, that's, a, that's a polite translation of a pretty strong phrase in the Greek, okay? Let's just get that on the table right now. Paul's saying, in effect, I wish they'd slip and cut the whole lot off, okay? Making themselves eunuchs. According to Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, eunuchs were barred from the temple assembly. Emasculating someone uh, was a pagan practice. Paul says, go ahead. Remove yourselves completely from fellowship. Take off. Leave the church. Cut yourselves off. I wish they would emasculate themselves. I, there's no polite way to, to say that. I mean, if, if you were in Paul's place, what Paul's doing here is he's roaring. Paul's upset. Paul, Paul, is, Paul, Paul loves these people in Galatia so much that he's yelling. He's saying, I wish that they would do something to cut themselves off. There's no way to sugarcoat it. Paul is livid. He's defending the gospel and he's defending the Galatians. He may roar loudly, and he's right and true in doing that. We live in such a sugar-coated world today that for someone to do that is almost inconceivable. You know, the caricature of a pastor 
as a nice man standing in front of a bunch of nice people telling the nice people nice stories is not the picture of the Apostle Paul. And I pray it is not the picture that you have of me or of this body of believers. Apostolic ministry is really about hand-to-hand combat. It really is about dealing with Satan breathing down your neck. So many people in our day and time marvel at Martin Luther. You know, we, we just had Reformation Sunday last Sunday, and we talked about Martin Luther. Martin Luther sometimes could be uh, pretty coarse. He could be pretty direct, pretty straightforward. Sometimes he said things that, that offend our modern sensibilities. But he did it because he loved Jesus, and he loved God's people, and he wanted God's people to understand how much God loved them. There's no room for for self-help-focused, legalistic, moralistic, nice cultural religion in the Scriptures. That's not what God calls us to. The gospel is important. And, And if we're to run with the pack, as a team of believers who are, who are living in a world that has fallen and that needs the gospel, we need to run unencumbered by elbows and by feet, and we need to clear the way for making that freedom by roaring the gospel. And I think that's what Paul's done here. Get off the track. We're coming through. The gospel is important. I think we need to roar for the gospel. I think we need to be made, we need to be known for our love for the gospel, for the truth of Jesus Christ. The living nativity ought to roar the gospel to our community. Your life ought to roar the gospel to your relationships, whatever they are. Well, it doesn't mean you have to be crass. But it does mean that you don't compromise. That you don't soft pedal. But that you speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Roar for the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the apostle. Thank you for his love for you. Thank you for his love for your people. And Father, thank you that your Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write these words so many years ago and that your inerrant, inspired, infallible word is good for us today. I ask you to use these words and to encourage our hearts to faithfulness, to living for the Savior's sake. We commit ourselves to you now and ask for your continued blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.